Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, June 21st. We begin with part two in our Safe City series. This time out, we catch up with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld to discuss the many challenges facing the police service today. And we put the question straight to the chief. Does he still consider Calgary a safe city? It is National Indigenous Peoples Day. We take a look at the many Indigenous tourism opportunities available in our province, and we get some great summer destination recommendations from Indigenous Tourism Alberta. Then we hear details on an opportunity to recognize National Indigenous Peoples Day through learning about the rich history of the culture. We learn about the Campfire Chat series presented by the University of Calgary, which gives the opportunity to hear unique Indigenous stories virtually or in person. And finally, how can parents better support their non-binary, transgender or gender-fluid children? We discuss with Tammy Plunkett, author of the new book, Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. What's fueling the rise of crime and social disorder in our city? Is there anything we can do about it? 770 CHQR presents an in-depth conversation. Making Calgary a safe city. Is Calgary a safe city? And uh, what are Calgary police doing to make our streets safer? Joining us to discuss as part of our Safe City series is Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. Good morning to you, Chief. Good morning, Andy. Well, we love speaking with you every month and, again, more of a, a lasered-in focus uh, this time out, uh, part and parcel of our Safe City series. So from your perspective, Chief, is Calgary still a safe city? Well, the really important question, uh, Andy, and it's on the minds of many people, as you know, and hence the reason for your series, obviously. But in my opinion, Calgary is still very much a safe city. Do you know, the Statistics Canada uh, keeps uh, statistics on the largest CMAs, the central uh, uh, census metropolitan areas across the country. And so, you know, Calgary generally tracks, I would say, middle of the road uh, around, uh, you know, rates of violent crime and also property crime and then overall crime severity. Uh, We're usually at or around, uh, like I say, the average there for the country. So uh, we haven't changed a lot uh, in terms of... um, in terms of uh, overall rankings. But I can tell you over the last decade, uh, for the first half of the decade, probably 2009 to 2013, uh, crime in Canada and Calgary was on the decline. And ever since 2014, we have seen a, a fairly steady uh, uptick. But that's, uh, we've seen that right across the country and including here in Calgary. Chief, I think gun violence is one of the top concerns of Calgarians. And, you know, yesterday we had another example of it with shots being fired between two vehicles during the busy afternoon rush. And this happened not too long ago as well. And that time it took the life of an innocent bystander. So what are we doing about gun violence? How does the police force work to try and curb what's happening there? Yeah, we've seen an uptick, uh, Sue, and it's a great question. And we have been actually out, uh, you know, publicly um, flagging this and, and talking about this since earlier this year. So over the last five years, we've seen, uh, I think, a, a pretty wide range in terms of the numbers of shootings in the city. And I want to preface this by saying that, you know, one of these is one too many. Uh, but the reality of it is in a city of 1.3 million, we're always going to have some. So over the last five years, we've kind of ranged between a low of 46 and a high of 112. So an average of around 85. And I can tell you that we were one of the cities or one of the census metropolitan areas in the country that did see an uptick. Uh, in shootings uh, during the pandemic in 2020, while many others saw a, uh, a uh, decrease. 
Um, so, you know, we've been looking at that uh, since 2020 into 2021, sorry. And then by 2022, we were seeing earlier in the, in the year there, our numbers were higher than they should have been tracking way too high uh, earlier in the year. And so by, you know, by midway through the year here now in June, we're sitting at around 65. Uh, and so if we have an average of 85, we already know that something's not right here in the city. And so I can tell you, though, you know, we look at every one of these and we take this, uh, the shootings in the city very, very uh, seriously for obvious reasons. That is a top priority uh, among many priorities, but public safety around uh, violent crime would be a top priority uh, for the Calgary Police Service. On the so, top, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sir. Oh, sorry, no, sorry, Andy, go ahead. On the topic of safety, we're seeing the images. It seems like almost daily on social media, and I think that may be the product of people having their phones handy. But public transit, the drug use in these shelters, uh, the transit, uh, you know, booths being taken up by people, maybe even passed out. What is being done? What are the protocols in place to address the safety on public transit at this point? Yeah, lots of work being done on transit. I mean, transit is vital, I think, to a to a, a bustling city like ours. And as things open up after the pandemic, that's going to be really important that people can use and access transit and feel safe while doing it. Uh, I can tell you that if you look at the numbers uh, prior to the pandemic, so in 2019, we actually saw higher levels of crime and social disorder uh, than we're seeing now on transit, believe it or not. Uh, but I would say, in fairness, the severity is worse. And there's, I think we've seen more assaults and assaults involving weapons and and bodily harm on transit. So some of the severity, I think, has increased, but the numbers actually aren't as high. Uh, but that doesn't change people's perceptions. I think I think we've seen a lot of challenges on transit, especially because of the ridership falling off there during the pandemic. So we're working with uh, the transit uh, peace officers and uh, city partners there to make sure that we have a visible presence on transit, and we're conducting um, uh, operations to make sure that we're excuse me, that we're dealing with the disorder issues that we're seeing on there. You know, I, I think there's a small number of people that are that are uh, accounting for a large amount of the concern that's being expressed. And so we're taking an intelligence-led approach there where we know sort of, you know, who's who's the disproportionately involved, uh, where, which stations are, are the biggest concern, and when in terms of which time of the day, and then making sure that with our partners, we're in those spaces to try to uh, help people feel safer on transit. Chief, in your view, as the head of the Calgary Police Service, if you could wave your magic wand and, and get all the money you wanted or the support you wanted, what would you do? What can police do to try and increase safety in the city to get these so-called bad actors off the street, maybe engage more with the community? What, what is the answer that we need here? Well, I think it's a systems approach, Sue, uh, mainly. I think, you know, the police have a space here. Um, with respect to the the intractable issues that exist. But I think, you know, like all big cities, we've got issues right now with folks with mental health. We've got issues with addictions. We've got issues with poverty and homelessness. And and these issues are playing out in public spaces, including our downtown, including on transit uh, property. And so, you know, it's all fine to say that, you know what, that's more of a public health issue and that type of thing. But the reality of it is there's a good number of people who don't want, they're either too ill or uh, too addicted to understand that they need help or they don't want it. And so I think there needs to be a good coordination there between um, between police and the justice system, between health and social services. So the folks that, that need help and that are open to getting assistance to be diverted from the criminal justice system, that's, you know, that's a perfectly good uh, response and we should be focused on that. The reality of it is there's a lot of people out there that are taking advantage of the, of the situation and they're not open to it. And so there needs to be a justice system response. What has happened, I think, during the pandemic is we've had capacity issues within in the justice system. 
And so our partners in the prosecution service and the courts have had to understandably prioritize violent crime for all the reasons that we've talked about here. That's very important. Uh, but some of the other issues, the disorder issues and some of the, some of the uh, acquisitive property crime, the theft from autos and the theft of bikes and these types of things, uh, those smaller crimes have actually gone sort of unprosecuted and that type of thing. And so I think there just needs to be that level of uh, coordination and make sure that we're actually, we know who can be diverted from the system and, and who won't be. And if you won't be, then I think that's that's more of a police response and more of a justice system response. Thank you for your time once again, Chief. We appreciate it, and thank you for taking part in our Safe City series. Thanks, Andy. Have a good day. You too. That is Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. The high price of gas has a lot of us keeping our holiday plans closer to home. So we thought with today being Indigenous Peoples Day, maybe a great time to discover some of the Indigenous experiences that we have, luckily, right here in our very own province. Mackenzie Brown is the Director of Development at Indigenous Tourism Alberta, and she joins us this morning. Hi, Mackenzie. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give us a bit of an idea just how big the Indigenous tourism sector is in the province of Alberta? Yes. So actually in Alberta, we have 206 Indigenous tourism member businesses. So that means 206 unique Indigenous experiences that you can take part in all the way across the province. Incredible. Let's uh, talk about the times that we are in. And uh, I know after two years of the pandemic, Canadians are wanting to get out there and have a holiday. Are you seeing that impact in the Indigenous tourism industry itself? We absolutely are. You know, in when we looked at 2019 prior to the pandemic, uh, there was some research that was done. And so we found that one in three international tourists wanted to take part in an authentic Indigenous tourism experience. But since the pandemic has taken place, it's one in two Albertans. Mm. So that's 50% of the population in Alberta itself. Okay, so you've got a great website, IndigenousTourismAlberta.ca, and it's an amazing resource for any Albertans looking for a unique holiday. You mentioned 206 options, so what kind of activities are available for us to check out? So something that I love about Indigenous tourism is it is so diverse, and there's something for everybody, whether it's culinary experiences to museums and cultural centers to small intimate experiences where you get to just sit around a fire and chat with a storyteller. Uh, You can go on a guided hike. You can go and stay in a teepee overnight or a Métis style trapper's tent. Uh, So whatever your interests are, there is an Indigenous tourism experience for you. And Mackenzie, when you look at the price point, I'm assuming, you know, obviously some of these might be overnight excursions or having you travel a little further from your home. But generally, is there something for every budget? Are there free things that people can take advantage of if they're in the areas? Definitely. So some of those free things that we have going on are a lot of events. You know, events weren't able to happen the last two years. And so we're seeing just a ton of things that people can take part in, whether it's learning about treaty days or international or indigenous tourism uh, and national indigenous people's day. Like right now, Uh, there's also a ton of powwows that are going on. So if you're interested in any of those events, uh, those event postings will be on Facebook or you can also find them at our website. 
I think it's great to recognize today and and what it means and why we all need to pay attention to this day. But, you know, these are things that people can do year round in the province of Alberta as well. Absolutely. And a lot of our experiences are throughout the year. So you can take part in things during the winter as well. I'm assuming we're talking, obviously, in a Calgary radio station here talking to Southern Albertans, but is this the kind of thing, do you get much interest from not only outside our province, but outside our country, from people in other countries who want to know what the Indigenous culture is like in our province? Absolutely. International tourists have some of the highest demand when it looks at uh, wanting to experience authentic Indigenous culture. So it is really widespread, uh, both domestically and internationally. Well, again, great website. Uh, You can hear stories of the land, explore things to do today and beyond. Thank you so much for your time this morning. And we'll direct people to, again, the website, IndigenousTourismAlberta.ca. Thanks, Mackenzie. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. As we've been chronicling all morning, today is National Indigenous Peoples Day, a day to honor and understand Indigenous culture. The University of Calgary is hosting virtual campfire chats that will discuss the Buffalo Treaty first signed back in 2014. Susan Mead-Kiss is Senior Director of Community Engagement with the University of Calgary and part of the team that helped create and co-create campfire chats back in 2015 with Elder Reg Croshu along with other community leaders. Good morning to you, Susan. Good morning. Thank you for uh, reaching out today. Thank you for being here with us. So this is the seventh annual Campfire Chats hosted by the university. If you could talk about the concepts of uh, sharing stories around a campfire and why that kind of that setting is so important. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, When we were, the university was approaching its 50th anniversary celebrations uh, back in 2016, we recognized it was a real, um, really important opportunity to tell stories and to listen and to learn from different cultures and um, other ways of knowing, doing, being, and connecting. And we wanted and felt a responsibility to engage more deeply with members of our Indigenous community. And back then, we were also in the process of co-creating our Indigenous strategy, Itapato. And so Campfire Chats really was co-created in partnership and in reciprocity with Elders Reg and Rose Crochu. Um, and other elders in the Southern Alberta um, area and Treaty 7. And it was co-created with many members at the university um, team, so our broader teams in what was the Native Centre and now the Writing Symbols Lodge, as well as the Office of Indigenous Engagement and the Community Engagement Team, along with our many um, collaborative teams in marketing and communications, alumni relations. Uh, fund development. It was a real opportunity to bring the university together, but more importantly, to listen and learn to stories from members of our Indigenous community and um, the broader community as well. Well, do you think we're more open and and really anxious to learn more about, uh, you know, our, our Indigenous communities here in Calgary and beyond as we learn and find out more about what has been going on through history that, you know, the Indigenous people have been trying to tell us about and trying to bring awareness to, but we're finally realizing it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, settlers or newcomers that have been keen to learn for a long time, but I think society and our community has um, perhaps woken up to this sense of responsibility um, and, and privilege, really, to, to acknowledge our own privilege, but also to learn 
from so many different cultures, you know, indigenous cultures, but other equity deserving communities as well. The indigenous stories that we are learning about, and we've been so blessed to learn about throughout the seven years of Campfire Chat um, on this National Indigenous Awareness Day, has really helped us recognize that dominant ways of knowing um, are not the only ways of knowing and learning with Indigenous communities and learning from Indigenous communities and honoring that knowledge is both a privilege and a responsibility. Just before we let you go, Susan, where can people hop on to to register? Where can we check out this uh, campfire chat? Well, we will be at Telus Spark today in person. We We have a maximum amount of people that have already expressed their interest and confirmed their attendance, but it's also available um, through a webinar and um, virtual, of course, in our hybrid world. And I believe you have the registration information. Uh, There's still time to register. Um, And we are really looking forward to such a beautiful day, you know, solstice, and coming together with um, a couple of hundred community members, broader community members and community members from the university and seeing so many people online. Um, I do want to also recognize our partners at Telespark and also our Alumni Association and TD Insurance who have helped sponsor this program. And we're thrilled with the partnership that has helped this program grow and thrive even through the pandemic. Good stuff. Uh, We're looking forward to it. Thanks for all you do, Susan. Appreciate your time. Thank you, and thank you for the time. Thank you. That is Susan Mead-Kiss, Senior Director, Community Engagement, University of Calgary. And, of course, online at ucalgary.ca slash indigenous slash campfire chats for full details. How can parents be a good ally to their non-binary, transgender, or gender-fluid kids? And what tools can parents use to support these children? Joining us to discuss is Tammy Plunkett, author of the new book, Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. Hi, Tammy. How are you? Hi, Sue. Nice to hear from you. Great to chat with you, of course. This is exciting. You know, I've been watching your social media. I know this is, it's been a while coming and it's a big deal that this book is out. You're getting a lot of good response to us. Tell us about the book and then the inspiration behind it. Uh, the inspiration behind the book is my transgender son. Uh, he came out uh, when he was 11 years old, so almost six years ago now. And um, when I was looking for information, I was having a very difficult time finding something that spoke to me as a parent. There was a lot of medical and technical stuff out there and a lot of scary stuff. And I just wanted to hear from a parent who'd walk the walk and understand what other parents are feeling. So when I couldn't find it, I decided to write it. So you need to do some research. How do you find, uh, Tammy, the appropriate verbiage, the, you know, uh, the appropriate language that's not going to be offensive that fits? Because it's, it's to a certain extent, outside looking and so new to us. Yes. Yes, it was very new to me, and I did make a whole lot of mistakes in the beginning. So, yeah, research, uh, I hit up uh, all of the experts. I have to give a huge shout-out to Kirsten Moore, who is a trans woman that co-leads Parenting with Pride with me, and uh, she has been amazingly gracious to help inform all of uh, the right way to say things. You know, I think it's, it, as Andy said, it's pretty new for a, a lot of people out there, right? And still, I think there are a lot of folks who just don't quite understand what, you know, being gender fluid or transgender or non-binary is. So what are some of the common questions or concerns that people have that they talk to you about? 
The biggest question I get is how can a child be transgender? Because a lot of people associate it with sexuality. A lot of, when you hear LGBTQ, the T is right in there with lesbian, gay, and bisexual. So a lot of people assume that it has to do with sex. And gender identity has nothing to do with sex. Children understand gender as early as three and four years old. And if they know at three and four that their gender doesn't fit what mom and dad assigned to them when they were born, then they speak up. And then sometimes they speak up closer to puberty when their body is changing to a body that doesn't fit what is in their mind. So transgender and gender identity, uh, non-binary, gender fluidity, all of that has to do with what we think about ourselves and how we dress and speak and present ourselves in the world. With, within the description of your book, Tammy, it, it does indicate that you offer gentle guidance through the first 100 days and beyond. And that uh, sticks with me in the sense that this isn't a, a one-stop shop, a conversation, and you're done or over a couple of days. These things take time, don't they? Oh, yes, it does take time. And that was an, uh, an expression that we used a lot in our family is this is for now, not forever in terms of the weight. Uh, my my son wanted a beard at 11 years old. He wanted everything to happen quickly and nothing happens quickly. And in those first hundred days, it truly is a sh- social transition. It is using the right pronouns and names and changing the wardrobe. But the other important thing is for parents to take time to, to process and to uh, give themselves grace and, and to do that processing away from their child so that they're not putting the burden on their child. But that all happens in those first hundred days. You know, and you mentioned the word burden in it, and it's got to be hard for, you know, these kids who, who are really kind of born into the wrong body, right? But as you say, it's really difficult for the parents too. And, and that is a journey of its own. So do you deal with that within the book as well, Tammy? Yep, right in that first chapter, because that really was what was missing for me was I went through a grieving process and I couldn't see anyone else doing that in the public eye. It was either sending their kid to conversion therapy or pulling out the pom-poms. And I needed to know that other parents struggled too. Uh, I went through a mourning process. So I did that away from my child and, uh, and, in this book, we start right away with all of the emotions. And there's some happy emotions too, right? It's not all negative and, and sad. But even the happy emotions, we don't want to impose those on our kid because they have to go through their process and they have to go at their rate. Chance for a quick plug here, Tammy. I believe the uh, you know, listeners will have a chance to meet you today at the Indigo at Cross Iron Mills. Is that right? That's right. I'm going to be signing some books and and fist bumping not necessarily shaking hands <laughs> <laughs> and hey congratulations i know you're uh, you're doing the the media tour you'll be on the marilyn dennis show and the social and and really spreading the word and i think it's it's such a crucial message these days that that you're sharing and from a parent's perspective and also from your son's perspective so thank you for for joining us and telling us a bit about it and uh, people can find more on your website tammyplunkett.com and again the new book is called beyond pronouns the essential guide for parents of trans children. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. Tammy Plunkett, author. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.